1: So far on the podcast, we've talked to financial advisors who've shared their paths to success and the challenges they faced. But today, however, we're, we're going to do something a little bit different. I talked to Julie Littlechild, the founder of Advisor Impact, a company that does practice management research and client surveys for advisors, and now actually the owner of Absolute Engagement, a new practice management research business, studying how exactly we as advisors can find a better level of engagement and success in our own businesses. I was really excited to talk to Julie for the podcast since... Here, we're all about understanding how to be more successful as advisors. And, and the focus of Julie's research is literally about how to be more engaged and successful in our businesses. So we've we've talked to some advisors, and now we're going to hear what the research has to say. And, and Julie really has a lot to share, not just on this topic, but as an entrepreneur herself who's founded a business, built it, sold it, and is now building another one. And, and transitions that were all driven by her own Changing desires and goals about how to enjoy her life and business and find her own work-life balance. And We actually talk about a lot more as well, Uh, Julie's research on getting more referrals, why asking for referrals usually isn't helpful, why the infamous I get paid in two ways line is actually a worse way to get referrals, and what you actually need to do if you want to become more referable and drive more business. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Julie Littlechild. Welcome, Julie Littlechild, to Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: I am so happy to be here. Really excited. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm excited to have you joining us, really for for kind of two reasons, that you've got an interesting business, or actually two businesses that you've had over the years around serving advisors, working with advisors, giving them advice about how to run their businesses together and I want to make sure we talk about that for a while but also that you you've had your own interesting entrepreneurial journey as someone who made a business and grew it and now has moved on to that and is doing another business and so I'm actually very curious to hear your 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 own perspective as an entrepreneur and business owner as well as the the advice you can share to advisors around this
2: yeah, so too. I think a lot of us get to the point where our businesses are kind of a reflection of our own journey, and it's hard to see. It's almost hard to see the difference between the two.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's particularly when you get into our advisory world, where so many of us are solo business owners and entrepreneurs, or running at least a quasi-independent path, maybe an independent broker dealer, but it's nominally our business. Mm. Where, yeah, you know, I mean, like the the business is you. You are the business. We now know on the back end that means it's really hard to sell because it's kind of like selling a piece of yourself. But <laughs> it 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 also means I for so many of us, the the business becomes a reflection of ourselves. And and I find even one of the biggest challenges for a lot of advisors when they really want to build businesses is actually figuring out how do I make the business not about me, but actually about the business. Cause that's yeah. a that's a hard thing to do. Absolutely. So, so how did you get started in our financial services world? Like, What brought you into this space in the first place?
2: Yeah, it's one of those things where I'd like to say, you know, from a young girl, I knew exactly I was going to be here. Of course, that wasn't the case. It's um, like a lot of things. There's a lot of chance and luck in these things. I was in business school. So, I had started my career in marketing and communications and then went back to do my MBA. And as I was coming out of business school where I studied finance, I began to work with, I connected with a a guy who was doing consulting primarily with advisors and mutual fund companies at the time. We're going back about 20 years now. And I connected with him and just and it was like I walked into this entrepreneurial business, he was in financial services, and that was one of those lucky connections that actually then propelled me to to stay here for all these years.
1: And so the business, so we're talking mid-1990s, so yeah. mutual fund sales is kind of the reigning paradigm of today, yeah. and the internet hasn't really changed our world yet.
2: Yeah, so it was – I remember very specifically the focus was so much on mutual funds and how they could market effectively. But one of the – we started doing some research and this was probably – I don't think I realized it at the time how oriented I was toward evidence-based material, but we ended up going out and saying, we really want to understand how top advisors tick. And I think we interviewed – I don't know, 250 advisors or something. And I took on this project. And I think that's what started in the back of my mind somewhere to really lead me down this path of what, the, you know, what really does make advisors successful? And and how can we look at that in a, in a more quantitative way?
1: And so, you were doing this initially with someone in someone yeah. else's firm. At some point, you made a transition to start mm-hmm. your own.
2: I did. And so we were a small company when I was with, when, when I was with this other firm and, I grew with the firm. We added a number of employees and got to the point where it was quite literally, there was nowhere to move. You know, it was a small company. There wasn't anywhere else I could go. And I I had this entrepreneurial buzz, wanted to get out and do something on my own. So, did that and initially in a collaborative way with the individual I was working with and started Advisor Impact. So, yeah, it was... uh it took me a little while to figure out what I wanted to do and it changed a little after I started doing it, but I did go out on my own at that point.
1: What pushed you to take that leap? Because I, I almost feel like there's a parallel. Like a lot of advisors I know have had some very good entrepreneurially minded Folks come up within their firms and mm-hmm. then lost them because the person went out on their own. So I, I almost feel like there's a question: like, is is there anything he could have done to keep you that like we can draw as a lesson here about <laughs> how to how to keep your entrepreneurially minded team on your team rather than going out to do their own business?
2: Yeah, you know what I think if it had been a situation where. There was real partnership opportunity, and I don't think that business could have sustained that, to be honest. I don't think it would have been the right choice. But if I could have taken on a piece of that, I might have have stayed. But the other thing was I found a real natural inclination around practice management at that time. And in a way, it was a bit of a nascent area. People weren't talking about it that much, but I was really we were drawn all just to salespeople it
1: salespeople at that point, right? exactly. There wasn't a- there wasn't a practice. There were there just, was, they
2: Practice were just what sell yeah, stuff. I mean, just yeah, get no, out there,
1: right? I mean, it was it, you know training. At, I mean, I'm not trying to totally bash our industry, but no, just no. you know, I mean, the '90s like training was how do you sell more stuff or how do you learn more about the product that you were selling? Yeah, you know, big advisors, I advisor in air quotes, I guess, like big <laughs> advisors had a a sales assistant. Yep, and. You went and saw more clients and sold more stuff.
2: You did. And that's and I even when we started it, a lot of what was of interest was how do I grow the business? And then it it almost felt like it followed this natural path where advisors were adding and adding and adding clients and assets and revenue and then they hit a wall and couldn't manage it. And we're starting to feel the strain. And so the work that we began to do both you know, individually and then on my own was in response to that. It's like, okay, you've grown it, but what are you going to do now? How are you actually going to manage it?
1: So what was the original business model for you at Advisor Impact? Was it just getting hired by individual successful advisors who hit a wall to help them get over this wall?
2: yeah it was <laughs> it was a bit of an interesting start because my thought was I'd been doing some coaching and my thought was that I would continue to build out a practice management coaching program that in essence dealt with the fundamentals. I think again, you look back and you think this was pretty much practice management 101. How do I segment my clients? How do I communicate on the team? How do I ensure that I've got a service plan that's profitable? And I thought, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be a coach. And I got a few clients and then I realized. A, I did not like coaching, and B, I wasn't particularly good at it. <laughs> so, well, that's um, a
1: good, that's a good <laughs> crossroads. That's a good crossroads. And
2: then crossroads you really get, yeah, you got to think, huh? What am I going to do now?
1: <laughs> so, so at this point, you were you were out on your own. Yep, running a business you don't actually enjoy.
2: <clears throat> uh, that running a business much, that
1: delivers a thing you don't actually want to do.
2: That pretty much sums it up. And it was odd because people were paying me money, but you you know when it's just not, you can do it. You, what I realized was I was a pretty good subject matter expert, but I wasn't a coach. And I think coaching is an incredible skill. And I have an enormous amount of respect for people who have that skill. I just don't consider it one of my own. I just needed to figure that out. And I did.
1: I mean, how do you how do you make that kind of transition? Is it just one day you've got a coaching call coming up and you're just writing it and saying, my God, I just have to do something different? Like,
2: yeah, there was there was two things. One, I do think there's an element of that. In fact, I I kind of go with that feeling today sometimes as well, where, you know, I might take on work and I don't dread it in the sense of, you know, I know it'll be pleasant, but somewhere in my gut, I know I'm if they called and said, "Can we postpone?" I'd be, yeah, yeah, you sure can, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yes. I think we all had those kinds of. Calls. You know what I mean? like, so oh darn, we're rest-
2: okay then. So, uh, but so I do think there are are signals, and I was getting some of those signals. But the other thing that I did know pretty early on is that I couldn't scale it, and for whatever reason. And I'm not sure why at that stage, I knew it. I knew I didn't want it to be just me. I knew I wanted to create some value in the business. And I couldn't do that effectively with coaching.
1: So how did you start shifting it then? Because I mean, that's got to be scary from a business transition perspective and and just from a a personal income perspective. Like, yeah, great. I'm well, finally making some money. Let's walk away from that.
2: Well, that's the thing. And I tell you what, I, uh, you know, I'm your classic working class family, never had anything, started the business with literally zero dollars and went on revenue from day one. I, you know, I bootstrapped everything. Um, so it wasn't a choice for me to just change one day. So there was a transition period. Well, first I had to figure out what I was going to do, which I, you know, I can talk about it cause it, it started to become apparent to me through the coaching, but I also it took me quite a long time where I reduced the the coaching I was doing and brought up the other side but the one thing and and this is you know it wouldn't have happened without the coaching is interesting that I was going in, I was talking to people about their business, and almost every time within the first conversation, we'd start talking about their service model, for example, and I would ask some question like, well, what do your clients think? And everybody looked at me like I had two heads and it became so apparent so quickly that we were just an industry that was operating with very little meaningful input from clients. So, as part of client engagements, I would say, okay, well, let's go out and survey your clients. I've got some, you know, I've got some skills in this area. We can, we can develop something. And it was incredibly rudimentary, but that was actually the start of the real business was was going out and gathering feedback.
1: So I know for a lot of advisors, there's always this gut response, like I'm the business owner who's making the the thing, the product, the service, the widget, the whatever it is mm-hmm. available. Like it's my job to show them what they want. You know, sort of the yeah. the like the right the infamous uh, what was it Henry Ford? You know, if I asked them what they wanted, they would have said better buggy whips or something. Yeah, right? yeah, anyway. yeah. So. What's your response to that when advisors say, "Well, like, why, why would I survey my clients? They, they, they can't articulate what they want. They don't even know they want financial planning until I do it for them, and then they say they love it." So, yeah,
2: yeah, financial, well, financial planning is a, definitely a tough one because it, it is one of those things that until you've experienced it, it's hard to know. But I. I think anybody who just said it out loud, something like, the client's at the center of my business, but I have no quantitative information on what they feel, think, or believe. And when you say it out loud, it sounds a bit silly that we, (laughs) you know, that you wouldn't ask your clients what they thought. So, it was clear to me that if if they were going to continue to build a business where it wasn't just a good product and, and it wasn't just good advice, but was an experience that was really going to be deep and engaging. They needed to go a lot deeper with clients. It was also pretty clear to me that if they did it well, they could uncover a ton of opportunity in their businesses. And that, that certainly turned out to be true. You know, and it's interesting, you look back and you you look back almost 20 years and it's kind of obvious now that the way in which we deliver value has, has changed. You know, at the time it was all kind of firm centric value like you said, here's what I offer. Hope you like it. I have it in black. Right. <laughs> That's what you're getting. Yeah. And then, and it kind of morphed into a bit more client centric, like having a segmented offer, for example. And I still think we're, we're moving down a new path for even deeper involvement going on, going forward for the client.
1: But what are you, what are you surveying that? I mean, is the like, was this an early version of like today's net promoter score or You know how do you feel about our services? So I can just kind of take the temperature. Like, wow, my clients are really happy, or like, wow, they're they're actually really unhappy. I I probably need to change something. (laughs) Like, are you? Is it just? Are these like take the temperature of the clients and what they're thinking, or is this Mm -hmm. like? I'm surveying my clients. I'm kind of trying to come up with like the next three services I'm going to roll out.
2: Yeah. I I would say that if you talk to advisors at the time, they would have said it was the first. I really just, every time we said, why are you gathering feedback? I just want to know that I'm doing the right things, that my clients are, are happy. I consider that a very light metric. I don't think it has a ton of depth. I think it's important to know if you're doing a really bad job, the data will show that. It doesn't show deep engagement, however. I think you, you need to ask some more clever questions. What I, what I really believe and believed at the time though was that in addition to getting that benchmark for your business, which was probably the first time a lot of them had that is that this kind of quantitative feedback was a prelude to a deeper discussion with your clients and maybe a kind of engaging discussion that they'd never had. So if you can ask clients, not just, how am I doing? You know, it's like saying, how do you like me so far on a scale of one to 10? (laughs) Yeah, that's not, not that helpful. But if you go a little deeper and ask them about different parts of the service or what their challenges are or what kind of communications would be effective or, you know, those, and then Talk to them about those results, not just gather the data. Then I think we're on to something that goes a, a little more, a little
0: deeper.
1: So I know for a lot of advisors now, we're just thinking like, "Wow, that sounds time-consuming." Yeah. Like how? I mean, how much time effort was it taking for firms to to do this? I mean, I guess obviously you had a service that was helping them with it. Yeah. So let me start with this. Like, what did Advisor Impact do? What did what did the advisor do like what, what what was the typical process
2: so advisor impact did really did two things the the core business was the, the client audit which was the client feedback tool and in addition to that we did ongoing investor research so that we would also have a robust benchmark as a point point of comparison and we're able to speak intelligently uh, you know and add some value around what what clients really wanted and, and how they could use the information. You know, yeah, you could go out, you still could today, you could get SurveyMonkey, you could figure out all the questions, you could send it out, probably wouldn't be great, takes a lot of time. And I thought that if, if we could create a process that was customizable but relatively turnkey, that an advisor could go in and spend maybe an hour or two up front to make sure the questions made sense. It was executed on their behalf. So we customized the questions, gave them the links to sent out, analyzed the data. But the real value to me wasn't all of that because frankly, a lot of people could figure that out. It was on the back end. How do you take the data and feed it back in a way that is helpful? So like you take net promoter score, It's not a bad metric to me. I find it has limited value in terms of being actionable. It's a good measurement, if you know what I mean, but it doesn't necessarily then say, okay, how am I going to use this information? So we would ask things like, have you provided a referral in the last 12 months? And then an advisor could get a list of everybody who had, and then we'd teach them how to have a conversation about that. So it was it was that kind of practical stuff that I thought might be missing.
1: And you found interesting stuff, I guess, when you started asking clients, you know, have you provided a referral in the past yeah. 12 months? Because if you see, for most of us, we build our businesses primarily through referrals. We're basically taught and told, you know, best practices, yeah. the best advisors get the majority of their new clients as referrals from existing clients. Mm-hmm. So what did you start finding when you began to gather this data about advisors trying to get referrals and how can I get more referrals?
2: When we first went out, we were asking the same question everybody was asking in a way, which was, "Are you comfortable providing referrals?" And about ninety percent of clients, on average, will say, "Yes, I'm, I'm. I'm comfortable doing that." Which creates this form of frustration, I think, for advisors. who are like, "Well, if you're comfortable, why don't and you do why it? Aren't you yeah, doing just go there, on ahead." Right. I'm right here. And then, I don't know, (laughs) suddenly one day we said, hang on, that's actually not the right question because that's just a proxy for satisfaction. But to ask, have you referred, seemed more actionable. And what became really clear, and year after year we still see this, about a third of clients say they've referred, advisors say they've met referrals from about three to five percent of clients. So, we've got this gap. So it started to become really clear that hang on, the problem actually isn't getting more referrals. It's that you're not meeting most of the referrals you get. And that that has a very different feel to it.
1: So let me put this in numbers. So, you know, I'm, I'm ai I'm an advisor that's got a hundred clients just because it mm-hmm. makes the math nice, nice and round and easy. So typical advisor will say, Yeah, you know, I I I did prospect meetings with somewhere between three to five. Client referrals. This was over the past six months or twelve months.
2: Twelve months, yeah. Twelve months.
1: So I've got a hundred clients. I met, I did some meetings with three to five. I guess referrals. Maybe one client referred a whole bunch, but like three to five clients yeah. gave me referrals. And then you went and surveyed, and thirty plus of the clients said, "Yeah, I gave my advisor a referral yeah. in the past year." So we're yeah. we're off yeah. by like a we're off by like a ten x factor of. Mm-hmm client says I referred and 90% of them, the advisor never met.
2: That's exactly right. And, and it was, you know, and it, it raises the question, well, what, you know, what's going on? And I, I give people the benefit of the doubt. I assume that the clients weren't lying about these things. And especially since I've done this research probably eight or nine times over the years, and it's always in the 25 to 35% range. And so, and it just be clear, became-
1: you're you're doing these surveys kind of third party and I, I mean this isn't like the advisor mm. sitting down saying did you refer me in the past no. 12 months like you're doing Yeah that's
2: right. In fact, we don't even when I I didn't even use the data from those surveys as our benchmarks because it was skewed. The only people who used us to survey their clients were people who generally felt they would do pretty well. Right? Nobody ever came to me not once and said, "I deliver horrific service. I'd like you to survey my clients." And prove that point, right? So,
1: so your one third number was like you just did generalized consumer yeah. survey research. Like, do you have an advisor? And if they say yes, you say, did you refer them in the past year? And a third of those said yes.
2: Yeah, with some uh, some caveats around assets and whatnot. So it's a representative okay. sample. Yeah. Okay.
1: Wow. So, okay. I, I mean, that's powerful because right? we, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of stats that get thrown around in our industry a lot mm-hmm. that tend to have. To put it kindly, some some sampling issues around where that where that some. data came from. So, yeah. so that's a big. De- how do you how did you get your investor consumer data then? Like who who did you survey or how do you find objective neutral third party people to ask these kinds of questions to?
2: Yeah, it's it's. A, I mean, getting consumer research is never easy. So we we typically use panels. And, you know, there's arguments pro and con on everything. Somebody could argue if anybody's on a panel, they're, they're biased. But as long as your sample's big enough, you, you can eliminate some of that bias. But that's basically what we've gone out every almost every year and done. Just said, look, we want people who work with financial advisors. They either make or contribute to the financial decisions in the house household. And then we set some quotas around different asset levels so that we can speak to the different types of clients.
1: And how many how many people would you ultimately survey? Is this like you get you get dozens of people, you get hundreds, a thousand, of people? A thousand? Okay, that's a very large sample. Okay, yeah,
2: I mean, if if you go over a thousand, your margin of error really just it just doesn't change very much. Right, so right. you it's yeah.
1: All right, so big broad based surveys yep. year after year, mm-hmm. and just continuing to find about a third of clients say I refer my advisor, and then most of us really only have like a handful of clients who say like, yeah, you know, Jim refers me a lot and Sheila does sometimes and then a couple trickle in and that's about
2: it. Well, yeah. And even more striking was that when we asked how many did you refer, the average is two people. So.
1: Oh, okay. So. We actually double. So if I've got a hundred clients. Yeah. I should see 60 prospects based on what the clients say they're referring and instead I get like five to 10.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and of course it's never going to be 60, but you should, there's definitely a, a massive gap there.
1: All right, so then the 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 natural question here is mm. so like, so where are ninety percent of our referrals going? Yeah, where
2: where, <laughs> where are, are some? Who go? is taking those people?
1: Like, is there one person out there that's just like grabbing all the clients and picking off everybody's it's, referrals? It's like,
2: like the referral snatcher, Michael? There's a I know, like, Where
1: is <laughs> first of all, I want to I want to meet the referral snatcher and have yeah. them on the podcast. But it's it's, yeah,
2: it's, if you're out there, like, like,
1: so where so where, where did all of these referrals go?
2: So, I I mean, the simplest way to look at it is they were referrals, not introductions. So the reality is advisors didn't meet the vast majority of these people. And as we dug into the data a little further, where the, the leaks are is simply that Clients aren't referring particularly well. You know, they're not articulating value particularly well. They're not connecting. Very few of them are true introductions in the pure sense of the word. Now, all of this is there's things we can do about it. So and, yeah.
1: Wait, let me pause there. So yeah. so so a little bit of this is kind of we'll call it loose use of the word referral. So, yeah. so from the client's perspective, like I'm at a I'm at my office cocktail party cuz right. it's you know we're coming off the holidays and you know my coworker says you know I'm really aggravated about you know what the company's doing with all the stock options mm-hmm. and I say oh well you should call Julie my advisor yeah. she's great with this stuff I walk away saying, "I'm awesome. I helped Julie. I gave her a referral right. And, and my coworker goes home and probably doesn't even remember the conversation. Exactly. Is like I think her name was Julia name Barb or, something. or something. Yeah. <laughs> so like so so a lot of it is that kind of sort of loose referrals is, is at least some of the gap here.
2: It is. And, and I think that example kind of highlights a missed opportunity, but also what really goes on is, so, I mean, in one scenario, you could say, if we, if we could educate our clients to articulate our value a little more purposefully, which of course assumes we can do that, then instead of it being, yeah, you should call Julie and, and, you know, can you hand me a cocktail wiener? It's, no you've you've got to call this person. Let me tell you a little bit about what they've done for us so I mean I think that that's part of the issue. I think the bigger missed opportunity that we saw though had to do with the fact that a lot of referrals don't come because somebody says "I'm looking for a financial advisor I mean that's kind of the low hanging fruit. That's the easy stuff. It's more about when somebody's really talking about a challenge in their life and your client can step in with a solution. So, you know, I'm out with my girlfriends and we're talking about, you know, family or, you know, I have a lot of friends who own small businesses. So, you know, all our money's in the business. Is this the dumbest thing we've ever done? We don't seem to be investing outside the business. Or I've got a parent who, you know, I, I need care for. Whatever, you know, people just talk about because right. I don't know about you, I never actually talk about financial advisors other than with people in the industry. And this might be
1: surprising. Yeah, I, I, I I, joke about this all the time. Like we, mo- A lot of us are in the business of selling comprehensive financial planning advice as either our core value proposition or our key value add. And mm-hmm. I've never actually met a person who woke up at two o'clock in the morning in a cold yeah. sweat going like... Oh my God, I've got like I have to find a comprehensive financial planner or I'm not gonna be able to fall back <laughs> asleep. Right. Like That's I mean, exactly. you know, I'm gonna lose my house, I've got a debt problem. Oh my God, yeah. I've got two kids and no college savings. I'm starting yeah. to freak out one random night. Like those are things I'll wake up in the middle of the night and freak out about. But no one wakes up, it's like, oh my God, like I gotta find me a comprehensive financial planner, or I'm not gonna be able to fall back asleep. Like
2: I know, it's no, it's surprising no
1: to this. Yet it's what we sell.
2: And yet, so exactly what you just said is the problem, right? So the more that we can help clients understand those problems that we solve, like we want to help our friends, right? We're just wired this way, unless you're just nasty and mean. Most of us really want to help our friends. So, if I'm talking to somebody about, you know, the fact that they're stressed out about aging parents and money and they don't have it in order, and I know my advisor deals with that, I want to make a referral. And frankly, it's not for my advisor, and this was really the, sort of the key finding of the research, I'm not referring to help my advisor, I'm referring to help the friend. And once we can get that framework in place, I think it helps us position for referrals more effectively.
1: Well, that's a powerful Point to make, right? Because for, well, a lot of us who've been in the industry and trained this way, and I know I still literally see this in some advisors' email signatures. Yes. Well, you know, we get paid two ways. Oh, gosh. The first way is that yeah. you do business with us and, you know, buy our products and invest with us and da da da. And the second way that we get paid is when you refer us to your friends and family. Yeah. And So your your the conclusion your research was basically that's crap. Like we need to stop doing that because they're they're not. You know my clients don't refer Michael because they want to help Michael. My clients refer Michael because they want to help their friend, and Michael's the problem solver.
2: Well, yeah, and it's a you know it's they don't not want to help, <laughs> right? I mean it's a happy byproduct if they really sure. cuz obviously they're engaged with you to to want to refer you. But yeah, it's it's like we're just not top, tapping into people's motivations. We've got to understand what motivates somebody to refer if we're going to increase referrals. So we've got to start really focusing on what you know, what do they talk about? And I think your example is a good one because that is what people talk about. Right. They talk about those problems and that they woke up in the middle of the night screaming about and they're just looking for solutions.
1: Well, and, you know, and I wonder that that whole like we get paid two ways thing. I mean, I have to admit, again, so if we wind the clock back 10 or 20 years, most of us got paid with an indirect commission from the insurance company or mutual fund provider that the client never actually saw. So mm-hmm. I get like if I actually you know, I did a financial plan for the client and then I implemented them into a bunch of B share mutual funds mm-hmm. and I got a check and the client never saw it. it's probably was actually a little bit legit that I went to the client and said, "Well, you know, I get paid two ways. The first way is that you invest with me, and then the second is through referrals." Because the client never actually saw the payment from the first time, so they probably felt a little bit indebted. Like you know, right. Michael did a lot of financial planning work for me, and I never wrote him a check. So I guess this yeah. is a. Uh, a way that I can give the reciprocal give back for the service they, that he gave because you never saw the commission. But particularly yeah. now in a fee based world, I mean, I have to admit, I know many, mm. very many people are like, you know, I pay my Y advisor 1% a year, but I feel like she's so underpaid that I really yeah, want
2: to also
1: give her some referrals to, you yeah. know, true up the karmic balance between <laughs> us.
2: So I don't. I mean, it's
1: it's almost feels like it's a strategy that's that's that version's gotten. Not only does it not really speak to the core motivation, but you know, it it kind of worked when they never saw the commission. It probably really doesn't work when they when they see the advisory fee and they know what they're (laughs) paying us.
2: Well, it also, you know, I don't think of my friends and family as a form of currency. You know, I can't go and buy milk with them. Like the guy at the store doesn't say. I'm giving you a discount on your milk, but make sure you send your mom here to buy it. It's <laughs> it's almost like a veiled threat. And the, I remember those versions, and it would all, it would get a little worse where it was unless you refer me. You know, I'll have to spend yeah. more time on marketing.
1: <laughs> oh <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I won't give you good right. The implied I just, threat, like I, you won't get good service. Yeah,
2: sorry, but
1: because um, I'll have to go market instead of taking yeah, the phone ooh. call. So, so I mean, so what's the all? What's the alternative? Right, yeah. I, like I'm going through my head now of all those, all those things that I got trained in, and you yeah. know, starting out in the insurance world in my early years, and you know, there was the you get paid two ways thing, which yeah. I guess now we're really poo pooing, but there yeah. was also the if you want good referrals from clients, like you pull out the piece of paper and you ask them to write down three names of people yeah. that they know that that would be a good fit for your services, and you know, while. Frankly, I could never bring myself to do that because it felt too awkward for yeah. me. I, I do at least get it, like, I know the re- I know the introduction's not going to slip through because I've got their name and I'm going to call them. Right? right. So that like there is a there's an assuredness that at least if I get the client to give me the name, as opposed to having the client give my name to the referral, mm-hmm. that now at least the balls in my camp so I can make sure an introduction happens. So do we still need to do some version of that so we make sure that referrals become introductions because otherwise clients give wishy-washy referrals?
2: Yeah, well, I think there's there's different levels of that. I mean, I think the core issue with that strategy is, I mean, you could put a gun to my head right now and I don't know who would be a good fit with my financial advisor. I just, I mean... I don't talk about this stuff with my friends. And it's not that we wouldn't. I just don't know, even though I would refer him. So I think that, you know, the first piece of it, which is just more, how can we... How can we focus on the challenges? So that would be something like, as an advisor, let me identify the two or three challenges that I hear most, just like normal person-type challenges. Uh, I'm worried about my kids making stupid financial decisions. I've got, you know, my parents are aging and I'm not sure how to handle this. Whatever those common issues are, I want to create a legacy of some sort. What does this all mean? Then build something around that, you know, because they know this is what they're going to talk to people about. So, share content that supports that and, and people will share it. You know, I always use this really simple example of something like, you know, the Secret Millionaires Club, which is Warren Buffett's online kids. I'm sure he's not involved in it anymore. But, you know, like sharing those kinds of links, that will get shared. That's a form of an introduction. The second piece though about introduction, I think is right, so then it's like, well, what happens okay I know you I know you deal with families, and i 've got a friend of mine who's been talking about these challenges now i 'm going to be worried you 're going to call them all the time so we 've either got to map out a process that says, "Look, if you would like me to call here 's my promise to you i 'm going to call once i 'm going to send them some information if they're not interested i 'll lose the number immediately we never will never follow up again or I've got this great video I just recorded on financial literacy for kids or I've got this uh, article I wrote. Would you mind passing it along? You know, creating that kind of connection I think is more powerful.
1: Interesting. So so two options there. So number 1 is you know, just actually saying essentially when you ask for referrals, "Hey, I just want to let you know really fast like if you give me someone's name to reach out to, like I'm just going to contact them once" and let them know what I do and that, you know, you would give me the name and I'm going to be very professional about it. And then that's that. So you don't have to worry that like, they're going to come back to you and say, yeah. you turn Michael onto me now. He won't stop calling me. So just, yeah. I mean, do you just literally verbalize that? Like you say to the client when you're asking for the referral, like, I just want to let you know how we handle these situations. So you don't have to worry about giving me a name.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you can, and, and that could just be on the heels of, you know, what we find is that you've got this friend, you really want to help. I think we can probably help them, but things, you know, slip through the cracks. So what we've found is we can, if you make an introduction, then you can get out of the middle and let us, let us follow up and yeah. And then, and then kind of follow up from there.
1: And then the second option is like, or I make some neat content related thing and just say, Mm -hmm. Hey, share this and have confidence. That's going to be so awesome Of the person's going to say, wow, that was really cool. Can you can i talk to you can you work with me
2: yeah and again it could be something that's um uh, subscription based where you're getting email addresses in order to so you could put a video behind a wall to to so that you do get the names uh of people i mean there's a lot of ways to to do that now that are pretty easy
1: but i i feel like for most advisors like we're going to get stuck at step 1 which is like yeah what do I talk about? Like, okay, make a video of what? What? Like,
2: yeah, yeah. What I, am mean, I supposed to
1: produce that—that that, you know gets people to give me the referrals.
2: And it's that's probably taking it down a path of somebody who really wants to to think about this. But I think if you could. I mean, it could be something as simple as this, you know, what are the, what are the two or three issues you hear most about? Okay. My, I have young parents, they're talking about financial literacy. Let's just use that as an example. I'm going to go online right now and I'm going to find three extraordinary articles on that. And then I'm going to create this campaign where I'm sending those out every couple of weeks, something easy that can be done and can be shared. You know, all the bells and whistles can, can come later there's it's just a simple place to start.
1: Well, and certainly I can attest to a a, a version of that through you know what I do on the blog, the mm-hmm. nerds Eye view activity. I mean, we there's no question, we've gotten referrals, we've gotten client inquiries that that came directly off of you. Know, right. Person person read article, thought it was well, I was gonna say cool, but like I write giant technical articles, so That's probably the wrong word. But like, thought it was sufficient. <laughs> thought it was sufficiently nerdy and interesting. Nerdy, yeah, yeah, high nerd that, factor. That yeah. they that they sent it to someone else they knew who had a problem. Yeah, and then that person contacts us usually with something like, "Yeah, I read your article, and that was a little beyond me, but like you clearly know what you're talking about. So can how do we work together, or can we work together?"
2: Exactly. And look, the you know the other, I won't have the exact stat, but. I think it's important here is we, so when we went out, we, we asked, have you provided a referral? So we have our 33% in the last study that said yes. So we still have a majority who said no, even though they're satisfied, right? They're, most of these people are incredibly satisfied. So we went to that group and we said, why didn't you provide a referral? And over six, about 65% of the people who didn't refer said, it's because I don't know who to refer.
1: Okay, so this is the like, my advisor's got a million dollar minimum and I don't know who has a million bucks. And I the last thing I want to do is refer yeah. my friend and then have them get rejected because they don't have the million bucks. So I'm just not going to refer anyone. And that way I don't have to worry about referring the wrong person.
2: Yeah, and and also rec and spotting a referral opportunity, right? People people aren't usually looking for an advisor. They're looking for a solution to a problem. Right. So I think we think about referrals as, yeah, if anybody asks me, I will refer my advisor. What we're trying to teach clients to do is when you hear about this problem, you should refer us because we're a solution to that.
1: Except I feel like the advisor, right? We're like, I'm a comprehensive financial planner. I got trained in 89 topics or however many on the CFP board's list. Like The answer to the client of what problems I solve is supposed to be like all of them. Stop! Stop it, worrying it so much. Just send them. Send them to me, and I'll let them know if I can help.
2: So, and that, and this is the equivalent of not getting any referrals, right? And I think this is the challenge: is we've got advisors who are smart, who have a ton of knowledge, who know a lot about a lot of things, and really, what I'm asking them to do is, for referrals, narrow that down to a few key challenges that a lot of people face and a lot of people talk about. And people find that hard to do because it's like saying, well, what about all the rest of that cool stuff I, I do? Like,
1: how many how many referrals am I going to lose out on if I yes. only give my clients three suggestions and fail to cover the other 97?
2: It, it, exactly. And the answer is none because they're not referring that much or you're not meeting most of those people anyway. So.
1: I guess, I mean, to me, that really is kind of the the key point, right? Like, so you got like three referrals last year. So out of your know, clients that they give you 60, you got three. Yeah. So how many do you think you're going to lose by trying to not, be more specific? Not those like, three. There's there's not a lot of downside at this point.
2: There isn't. And you know what? I'm I'm quite convinced that there is a natural level of referrals that if you just do good work, you know, it's like Gladwell talks about connectors, right? There's people out there who... just want to tell people about you. And they're wonderful. And we hope we have them. But there's probably a limited number of those in your client base. So you could do nothing and still get referrals. Or what we're really talking about is what happens above and beyond that? What could I do in a more proactive way to bump that number up?
1: Well, and it reminds me, so I had a, a version of this that came up a couple months ago. So I was speaking at an event with two other advisory firms. We were. Invited in by a third party group to to talk about estate planning mm-hmm. strategies and and issues. It was kind of an income and estate tax planning seminar, basically for some fairly high net worth folks that were getting gathered in the room. And you know, I was I was the representative from our advisory firm, and there were two other uh, fairly large, very capable RIAs that were that were there as well. And so, you know, as it turned out, I was like third out of three in line as we were in doing introductions. So you know the first mm-hmm. person stood up and said, you know, I'm I'm Joe and I'm from so-and-so firm. You know, we we've been here in the area for 27 years and we manage $2 billion. And you know, we do comprehensive financial planning and risk management investment management. And you know, we also do a lot of sophisticated tax planning, because of mm-hmm. course that's the topic of the day. And you know, that's my background. I'm a you know CPA and a tax attorney. And then the the second person stood up and said, well, you know, I'm I'm uh, Mark and I've also uh, – our firm's also been here in the area for about 30 years now. We actually manage about $4 billion for a combination of institutions and affluent individuals like uh, a lot of you in the room. And, you know, we do really advanced tax strategies and we do a lot of work in estate planning as well. And so I'm looking forward to talking to all of you about that today. And so then I got up. like – Basically, our firm does exactly, exactly what the, the other two guys yeah. uh-huh. said, but yeah, you know, we 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 tend to skew towards re- retirees. And most of our clients are are kind of within five years of retirement or in mm-hmm. the first ten years after retirement. And so I stood up and I had said, well, you know, I'm 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 Michael. I'm a partner and director of research with Pinnacle Advisory Group. You know, we work. You know, we've also been here in the area for about 20 something years and have a uh, billion and a half dollars under management. But we, we work primarily with retirees. So most of our clients are uh, within about five years of retirement or into the first five or 10 years of retirement. You, we actually help them with a combination of retirement income distribution strategies. So coordinating portfolios with the timing of when to start social security and when you get Medicare going. Uh, you know, We tie a lot of income tax strategies into that. We work with partial Roth conversion strategies and the similar. And and then for our clients who are actually going to accumulate more than they even need for retirement, we do a lot of estate planning about what happens with the assets they're mm-hmm. not going to spend down in retirement. And so I, it was like a very retiree specific yeah. pitch. So there were about fifty people in the room. I would I would guesstimate probably half the room, I basically disqualified on the spot because they either had not enough gray hair or far too much gray hair. <laughs> <to laughs> yeah. Retirements minus five plus 10 year window. Yeah, But, you know, I, I watched three or four people who were like directly attuned in when I was saying it because like, I, I can see there were 60 something in my target window. I actually watched when I made the comment about timing Social Security, I literally watched one woman elbow her husband and point at me <laughs> when I said it because it was clearly a particular problem they've been
2: talking about that. Yeah. And,
1: and when and when we got to the end of the the session, you know, we all did a fine job. I knew I knew both the other panelists. They're very good yeah. speakers and they're very smart folks, and they and they talk just fine on a panel. But we got to the end of the panel, and the first gentleman got no business cards, and the second gentleman got no business cards. Mm-hmm. And I got four business cards from people yeah. who were in their 60s who needed help, including the, the couple with the elbowing wife. <laughs> with the,
2: with the, you know, the elbow who, woman. But you know, see,
1: grabbed, I mean – grab something and brought it up. And I, I mean it was just that thing of, of like I – you know, they, they were broad. I was specific. Yeah. And as a result, they were qualified to work with all 50 and got none. Yes. I was qualified. To work with only twenty five, and I got almost a quarter of
2: it. It's great. I mean, first of all, it strikes me that yeah, if, a you were the only one who didn't talk about you. You talked about what you do for other people. You, you know what yeah. I mean, it, it, which is key. But at the end of the day, you want to work with someone who understands you, right? And I've been talking a lot about this with you know, as I think you know, with you and others, and not alone in this view about target marketing, but. You know, when you do it well, people are drawn to it like a magnet because you say, "Look, you just get me," and and absolutely, it's going to increase. But it's a frightening concept for some, for many.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, there's there's really a mindset shift, right? That to say, like. I'm not going to worry about the fact that I'm going to disqualify myself from half the room. I just want to get a small fraction of the room I actually can connect with because mm-hmm. that's still more than the zero everybody else is going to get by making the net so wide they don't actually catch any.
2: Absolutely, and I mean we all deal with this. Is, you know, I was, as you know, I just finished writing a book, and I was thinking at one point I should, you know, I should make this a bit more broad. And I, I talked to a guy who had been in publishing for years, and he's like, "Don't, don't do it." And I didn't really want to. I knew where I wanted to write, but he's like, "You're going to dilute that message so much that it just won't be effective." And I think it's true.
1: So you built this business of yeah. doing. Client client audits. I guess mm-hmm. I mean that was literally the the survey product was called yeah, the client yeah, yeah. audit, and I guess and you're doing consumer research, mm-hmm. so you can pair it to it. So that seems to have been going well. I I mm-hmm. still you know correct me if I'm wrong. I, I still don't know anybody else that actually does that right. now. So that ostensibly was going well. You're not yep. doing that now. So yep. what what happened? What changed?
2: A few things changed. I mean, first of all, I had, I had built an, a nice business. Um, you know, it was doing reasonably well. And a couple of things happened. One was that I knew at some level, although I don't think I had articulated it, that I wanted to do something more and different, that I, I had been down this path for long enough and it was time for me to, to do something different. But the real pivotal moment was nothing to do with work at all. It's it's when I knew my son was being born. <laughs> and I can literally tell you that it was almost to the day that I began to look for someone to buy the business because I looked forward and I thought, okay, I, this it's time for me to get a little more, fl- by the way, none of what I'm about to say happened, lesson learned, but I wanted more time. I wanted more flexibility <laughs> and I didn't want the stress. <laughs> I wanted, you know, I was 45 when my son was born. I'd waited a long time. for that. So I was like, okay. And so I started to look uh, to sell the business.
1: So it was, it was personal event mm-hmm. driven just, just to say I'm not at this. It's a, a work life, I guess, as we classically call it, a work yeah. life balance decision. My life has changed. And so, I just don't want to be the business owner driving this thing right now. I want to. I want to do something different that lets me spend different time with family.
2: Yeah, a lot. A lot of it was that. And, and truth be told, I think if I had been loving every minute of it, of it maybe I wouldn't have made that decision in that in that moment.
1: But there were some. Well, I guess as with any business, right, there were some down down yeah, times to it as well. For sure. So, so what did that process look like? I mean, is is that well? I, advisory industry, I feel like selling our business is kind of weird because if you've got it at all, uh, good sized business these days, like people are calling you even if you're not looking to sell just, just because they're looking. If you actually publicly announce that you're looking to sell, you get like 30 to 50 inquiries in a couple of days, according to the FPA transitions folks. So uh, you had a more unique business. So what, like, Mm. what does that process look like? How do you go out there and say, I'm for sale? Like, who buys a, Advisor. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you even frame it? Like, were you an advisor, practice management consulting firm? Were you a uh, uh, an advisor, survey data research firm? Like, how? Yeah, do you- it was
2: a bit in between. I think we were we were seen as a research and practice management firm okay. uh, because we didn't. You know, it could have been a technology play if I built it differently, but it was really that. Now, bear in mind that I was also. About to sell after the worst downturn in history. Okay, like, so there this was, so there was no was good.
1: Your, so when was your son born?
2: Two thousand nine.
1: Okay, so so you're having like the epiphany. I'm ready to sell the business at like the worst, the possible worst time. time, worst time. Couldn't since have been you orcs. never founded it that we yeah. would be.
2: Absolutely. So, okay. I knew that I wouldn't get the value that I could get if I hung on. It didn't matter to me at that point. I just knew I had to do it. So, yeah, I, I talked to larger firms in the industry who may want to add value to clients. I looked at companies who were other sort of consulting companies And in the end, what I found was a company that was a startup. But at the time, a well-funded startup that wanted to build out a program that incorporated client feedback. So that's ultimately what I did.
1: Okay. And so the business gets sold and then...
2: Then nothing changes. And so... you
1: You don't have the job you used to go to. So, like, well,
2: I did though. That was the problem. <laughs> it was oh, they so, also so- wanted to keep me there. Okay, and, and so what I ended up doing was continuing to run a business, and it's 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 a long, boring story. So I don't want to get into. But I mean, I should have just walked away at that moment. Lesson learned. We all have these big lessons. I didn't, and uh, continued to run it in a way, in a situation that made it very difficult to run.
1: Well, because now you've got other masters to answer to who yeah. are trying to fit your business line into their business strategy, yeah. Yeah. which is different than when you're running your own business. I mean, is that mm-hmm. kind of a, a yeah. tip for advisors out there as well, right? Because you know, sell your business versus tuck into a larger firm is, is a common discussion in our world as well. So yeah. is this like a, a cautionary note against... Tucking in, or it didn't or just- have
2: to be. It, in this case, it was, and in part because it was really who I sold to, it, which was really people who'd raised a lot of money but hadn't really proven their own concept yet. Um, okay. So that was really the challenge there. Okay. Choose your choose your, your purchaser so, wisely.
1: So how so? How long did you stay with them and continue in that role?
2: I did that for the better part of four or five years.
1: Okay. And then, so just relatively recently in the past year or two, finally. Yeah, last two years now. And said, yeah. and said, I'm just, I need something new and different. And so how how do you formulate that transition? I mean, had you had you been already thinking about what the next business was going to be and kind of plotting your transition while you were still in the old one? Or was there just some like... Moment, if I can't take it anymore, and you said <laughs> that's that, and you quit, and then your next morning you went, "Oh crap, I have to figure out what to do now."
2: It was a t- it was the toughest time I've probably been through because I felt incredible responsibility to the team that was there, to clients. I felt like I just had to keep this thing together. I, you know, it was a uh, it was really really difficult. So. There was plotting in this for after a while, but no, I was ready to just, let me, I'm just going to keep doing this. Don't think about anything else. Head down. The pieces that really triggered the change, there was, there was a few. I mean, one was quite simply that I had taken on a situation where it was literally impossible for me to succeed, just for various structural reasons, and it took a long time to get there because this was the baby that you'd created. And it was almost like tossing it out. And I, I had to get to that point where I was comfortable saying, this isn't mine anymore. And it's, you know, there have been some issues here. So what am, what's the best thing? The, the transition for me was when I got to the point of saying, okay, something has to change. So what's the best way to do this to minimize, uh, you know, any risk or damage and and just think about what the next thing will be and that took probably 2 years
1: so were you you were thinking more about how to do the graceful exit even than what the next thing would necessarily be
2: yeah a little bit not <laughs> that sort of one of my greatest <laughs> problems is that i you know, I'm often thinking about those things to the detriment of, of, you know, what I should have been doing, which was really plotting what the next thing will be. So the day that I oh, established I, I the company, it, I I wasn't entirely sure what it was going to be. I just knew it had to be different.
1: I don't, I don't think that's unique, right? I mean, with, yeah. I, I feel like that's how we're
2: A bit frankly, wired, kinda
1: how we're wired as human yeah. beings, right? Like it's, it's, you know, thinking of a new thing that's completely different is hard and scary, and and all that stuff. But like, I'm unhappy now and feeling very unhappy in my job. Like that yeah. one, I can identify pretty quickly, and yeah,
2: and,
1: and go like, okay, so this needs to change. I'm not quite yeah. sure what's going to be, but like, this needs to change. Mm-hmm. So, what did the transition look like? I mean, did by the time you, I guess, qu- quit the job yeah. where you were, like, do you did you did you Know what the next thing was? I mean, it sounds like not really. You just kind of quit and said, "I've got all these contacts and I know stuff, so let's." let's start
2: <laughs> it was a little, I'll, yeah. There I'll was have more
1: time to think about I'll it once it I don't out. have a job.
2: <laughs> but you know, bear in mind, I've, I had a young kid at the time, and there's, you know, you're the primary breadwinner, and there's pressure and all of that that goes with it. But to some extent. One of the things that I did as I was prior to having walked away was I started working with a coach who ended up being incredibly helpful in helping me really think about, because I was feeling stuck. I literally did not know what to do. And she helped me to articulate a different path forward and to begin to to take action on that. So that was that was quite pivotal for me. I knew that I, I assumed I wanted to just continue to do the research that I was doing. I did have, you know, luckily a a lot of great contacts and ongoing clients that I could work with on the research side. I had an idea that I would build out this spotlight program, which I remember talking to you about as a revenue generator. So what was kind of interesting to me is like, I just, without even pausing, I just got to work, right? Okay. I can do this. I can grow this. I can do this. And it wasn't until about a year later where, and I just have this distinct recollection of, and it's where I'm sitting right now. And I was in my office and I kind of pushed my chair back and I was like, what, what do I actually want to do? And, I, and, and in this weird moment, everything began to change because then I, I rebranded, I changed the focus, I changed the structure, and that's been over the last year where life is back to normal and all good
1: and are like in the meantime are you going through the the stress of not driving the the revenue or earning the salary that you were before or was there at least like the original sale of advisor impact gave enough cushion that you had some runway to figure this out before it got really financially stressful
2: not a lot i mean i didn't i, d- I didn't get paid everything on the, on the deal that was part of the problem so uh, in a way i was trying to make up i was trying to be profitable from day one. And so, yeah, I, d- and I was, I, you know, uh, I'm feisty that way. So I was able to.
1: Well, and I guess, and, and the good news of making the leap at that point, you know, you, you, you do know a lot of people and yeah. have a lot of opportunities When it's your second business after you've spent 15 plus years building the
2: first one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was a a very different, you know, and you're grateful for that, you know, the way that it goes at that point because you do have options and you do have choices. So, So yeah, but it did take me a while to figure it out.
1: So I've got to ask really fast then. So here's our good referral opportunity. So do 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 you have a coach that you can recommend that's really helpful for people who are stuck in trying to figure out this what's next transition?
2: So I worked with a woman named Caroline Miller, Caroline Adams Miller. And she is part of the positive psychology movement. She was one of the original people who was trained by Marty Seligman. And I don't know how much individual coaching she's doing now that I say that because she <laughs> she's got a new book coming out. She's doing a ton of speaking, so it'd be interesting to see. But yeah, she was for me the perfect person to work with.
1: Okay, and it was just a like a a self discovery process.
2: It, it was a little bit. It's you know it was a start with you know what do you what do you want to create, which is in some ways what I talk to advisors about now. Just going through some exercises of what's you know, you wake up kind of five years from now. What does it look like? But she had a way of making it very tangible, going through exercises where you really were making it real. And, and all of that started to shift the thinking because like one of the things I've become convinced of in the work that I'm doing now is that w- what stops us from going forward is that we don't always accept that. The possibility. We don't accept that there is a possibility of something bigger and greater that we could be doing because it's a frightening concept. And so I think that's what she helped me do.
1: And so I curiously like, what did you what did you spend or invest in this process? I mean, like was this an expensive proposition?
2: For the coaching piece of it yeah. or the transition?
1: The the coaching piece of it.
2: Yeah, so gosh, what did I spend? You know, it's I, I think I was doing coaching every other week and it was probably investing about six hundred dollars a month in coaching.
1: And how long did that go on? That was oh,
2: I was worked with her for a couple of years.
1: Okay. So, you know, I got seven thousand yeah, dollars yeah. a year. I mean, it's I I I talked to a lot of advisors that that kind of wonder about coaching and then and then balk or are concerned about the the cost. I mean, did the did the old firm pay for this? Does this just come mm-hmm. out of your own pocket say, like, I'm making this investment in myself?
2: Well, I mean, I had a new – I was paying for it out of the new business.
1: Okay. And just it felt like a worthwhile investment for where you were. I guess looking back, you're still happy with it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I I don't know that I would have – become unstuck. I, you know, I just, I needed, yeah. needed that. And like, you gotta, it's like any, is finding an advisor. You got to find that right person where, where it gels. But I, I just loved the work that she was doing.
1: Well, we'll make sure we uh, look up her information, have it mm-hmm. the, the show notes. So if people want to follow up and go, go to the website, we'll, yeah, we'll, absolutely. we'll find whatever we can find to, to see if she's still accepting clients or, yeah. or doing coaching. So, So, talk about what you're working
2: now then on
1: now then. I mean, what's what what is the business today? What are you what are you doing, and who are you working with?
2: So, so the business is called Absolute Engagement, and that's also the concept of that I'm looking at. So, what I study and the business are are essentially one in terms of uh, different ways to look at it. I mean, first of all, the context of where I got to. So, I've spent years at this point studying client engagement, right? I had between the feedback and the consumer research, that was really my wheelhouse. And as I began to observe people that I considered successful, and by that I mean they were not only financially successful, larger advisors, but this group of people who just seemed more joyful. You know, there there was there, they had momentum, they were happy, they were doing the right things. And I sort of pulled the camera back a little because in the past I would have said, well, it's all about client engagement. And I realized, you know, it's not. It's it's really the interaction between personal client and team engagement. It's a, it's about building a business that starts with a personal vision and then bending the client and team experience to support that in a way. And so overall that's the concept that I'm really looking at is how do you intentionally design a business that really supports the life that you want to live? And then, how do you make sure your life is is such that you have the capacity and the energy to do all of that? So it's yeah. And so,
1: like, what are you what are you doing for people? Like, I'm presuming you're not going back down the one to one coaching road, or maybe you clearly are,
2: not. I, I was oh, so yeah. bad at it.
1: Is it like is this going to be a a research driven effort? I mean, you want to study us as advisors <laughs> and try to figure out like you know, what lets us get to these levels of higher engagement and then we can look forward to research where you'll share back to us what you're learning as you as you dissect us. I don't mean that in a bad way. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. You're all in my laboratory, (laughs) whether you know it or not. So that is part of the business. So that really is everything that I do, it's just me, right? It has to be evidence based. So I continue to do research, quantitative and qualitative That, I mean, there may be revenue associated with it, although that's not the really the business model. I'll continue to do that though. That's part of just what I do. The business itself, the work that I do was part of my own journey. So as I say to advisors, it's about what's your personal vision. When I set, set back that day, what was really clear to me is what I love to do in addition to the research is speaking and writing. And I like the kind of course development side of things, like creating models out of the research. And this was a tough thing for me in a way. I'd always done speaking. I'd always done writing. But I had never had the courage to say this is what my business is going to be because it's a whole different game and so so it is speaking it is writing and then developing resources on whether that's online courses or live events to help advisors take action on these concepts
1: okay so we can expect to see kind of courses and more mm-hmm. tools like that on yep. absolute engagement going forward as you kind of produce these things in the coming years
2: yeah, I mean, for example, the, the the book comes out. That's a you know, it's a great primer on absolute engagement. But what we're developing is the first resource that will be for the advisors who read the book and say, you know what, I I want to do more with this. That that's all very nice to read about, but I want to take some action. And so we're really we're really starting to design courses around the personal engagement side as well as more advanced client engagement.
1: Okay, and so these will be kind of tools and things that advisors can try to pick up and implement in their in their practices for themselves. Yeah, and and when does the book itself come out?
2: So pre sales start uh, early December, and it will be physically ready to ship January seventeenth.
1: Okay, fantastic. So just as we're uh, going live with this podcast, recording mm-hmm. a little bit in advance. Uh, uh, the book should actually be available in people's hands. So we'll make sure that's in the show notes as well Perfect. so people can can find it. So I'm curious overall then, as you're talking about this in your own context as well as you – know, if you're going to – I know you'll appreciate this because you're evidence-based and, and data-driven. <laughs> so if if you want to study advisors who are successful – Mm. You have to define what success means mm-hmm. so you know which ones of us to put under the microscope. Yeah. So how how do you define success?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. And I think you said it right out, out of the gate. You know, we could look at all the, the top advisor lists, but that doesn't – it's not the success that I look at. I I look at success now and granted this has changed over the years. I think we have a luxury of age that does influence how we think about this because of course it is about financial success that gives us options and freedom and all sorts of wonderful things. But it's largely about, for me personally, about building a business that that supports this personal vision that I've got for my life so that I'm doing exactly the work that I want to be doing with the people I want to be working with and and sort of structuring a life around that. From a quantitative perspective, it, it was an interesting challenge. And and essentially, I, I had an hypothesis that I started with. And the hypothesis was that there was a group of advisors who were incredibly intentional about how they built their business. They defined their ideal client and they worked with those clients. They defined the kind of work they loved to do and they just they did that kind of work and, and as leaders they defined the kind, the role that they wanted to play. And so when we went out, we were able to ma- ask some questions about this. And then backed out. So we, we created a segment, which we call the Absolute Engaged, Absolutely Engaged, who were higher on those things, on intentionality around clients' work and role. And then we looked at the impact. So the impact, and this is what I just found so extraordinary. So yes, they were making more money. I mean, I wasn't that surprised, but but it's important to say. But what was more compelling to me was that this segment just based on doing those three things differently, reported lower stress, higher energy, better health. They focused on the right activities. They were more confident. So, it was this extraordinary sense of not just financial success, but well-being. And that really reflects what I see success as being.
1: So, this is actually, we're not just talking about work-life balance here. Cause I mean, this is the context of Advisors were either literally business owners or at least nominally owners of our our mm-hmm. client base and who we're working with. So, I mean, you're talking about kind of a blended like work client life balance, <laughs> like because all all three like I I've got to have the right balance between my my life and my work, but also between my work and my clients, and like all three are in. Trying to put them in harmony here? Is
2: yeah, that- it's, it, well, harmony is a good word because I think it's the alignment. So, it's where it starts. So, the principles that we've identified is with this group of people that it, A, it starts with your personal vision. What is it that you're truly, what is it that you want to create? What do you want this business to look like? And that's got to start with the person. And that's all about awareness and, you know, having the courage to set different kinds of goals. And that's where client and team start to come in because then they support That vision, instead of thinking about it in isolation, you know, for a simple example, it's not just what does good client experience look like? It's what's a good client experience if my passion is to work with professional athletes? It, for example. I mean that's just kind of a the simple one, but that's where the client experience starts to bend to the personal vision and then from a team perspective, who do I need on the bus? What kind of development plan do I need in place? How do I, what skills do I need? All starting with that personal vision. So that that's alignment, really. But the 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 work life balance I think is an important part of this because the the deeper i got into this and and i could see these businesses being structured in this very aligned way it also became clear that when you're absolutely engaged or you're successful you're you acknowledge that you're also human and you're investing, you're finding ways to hold yourself accountable, whether that's in study groups or masterminds or, 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 what have you, you're thinking about your health and sleep and, you know, all of those things that we need to do to be creative and to have the energy to keep going.
1: And I, I just, there's a part of this saying like, and, and for a lot of people are saying you probably have no idea what that vision is, mm-hmm. like. What's the vision finding process? I get uh, option one is, is call Carolyn Miller. So maybe, maybe she's
2: taking,
1: <laughs> uh, clients, but I, mean, like, I, so I guess there's like, there's a coaching path to try to figure this out. I mean, you could, it, yeah.
2: You could work it, with a coach. You could work with a colleague, a, a mastermind group. You could do it yourself. I, what I, what I really wanted to do, particularly with writing the book is, and this is just me, right? I had to create a model. So knowing, seeing all of the data, observing what I'd observed, talking to people over the the previous two years about these issues, I mapped out a model. And, you know, it does start with an awareness process and through setting some clear goals, through taking action and accountability and renewal. And so there's a level of just self-analysis, which can get some people all the way and some people only part way. They may need help with that. And I think a lot of people will. I tell you the one thing, and I don't know if you hear this, it's, this has been the most interesting piece. And you and I were talking about success at one point, and, and I can't remember what word you used, but it was almost like talking about the things that you don't see, right? And I think what I've realized over the last little while is since I started talking about absolute engagement, giving presentations, I'm having completely different conversations with people. It's very kind of open. It's honest. I have people coming up to me going, this is, this is my problem. I'm stuck. I know I need to do something. I know I need to make changes. And I'm fascinated because it's like all of a sudden you're having the conversations we all should have been having for years, which isn't just about success. It's about what did we give up in order to be successful. And, and it seems to be hitting a nerve, and I think you've obviously sensed it just based on the you know what you're looking at in the in the podcast and it's rampant
1: is this a thing where we have to get to a certain place in our careers is there a like I've got to live it right or wrong for a while before I actually feel like that I'm not happy with the path where I am. But, but like,
2: yeah, and I, I do... Like, is this
1: the advisor's version of a midlife crisis? Like
2: a it's it a little crisis? bit. Um, I do think there's a, co- a connection to age. I'll tell you what, when I turned 50, this was a, like, it was all connected to this. And I do hear that from a lot of people. You know, for some people, they go through the same thing in their 40s and some people as their 60s. But they're, I think in general, it probably is true... Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but you kind of look at, there's different scenarios that we face. You, you know, you have some people who get into the business and they just work, 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 work. They have no clear vision of even why they're doing it. And then one day they go, hang on, why am I doing this? And, you know, you you could be in your thirties when you ask that. They just don't have a vision. But for a lot of people, and I would put myself in this category, it's just that things change, right? we had a vision, it was a good vision, we worked, we built, we grew a business. And then something started to change in terms of what we really wanted to do. And we've got to honor that by then making sure it's reflected in the business.
1: And is this ultimately what you cover in the book? Like, these themes what you've learned so far is is that the the focus of the absolute engagement book.
2: Yeah, it it's uh it's a bit about what absolute engagement is, it's about the research that we've done and then it's essentially it's a five-step process and five key decisions that we need to make in life in in order to move ourselves toward that.
1: So I guess for anyone who's listening, you're you're your first option for trying to figure out how to go down this road is is go get Julie's book. Yeah, now now, now available on Amazon. I'm sure uh, we'll <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes and yeah. and kind of read through it and just start doing this at least self reflective process and then figure out can you get through the reflection on your own? Mm-hmm. Do you need to bring this to your study group? Do you need to find a coach? Like how do you keep moving that that ball forward?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. I I, I think you're right though. I think a lot of people need some sort of support in thinking this through. And it, you know, it could be a spouse. It's not everybody's spouse though. So it's gotta be that person who can help you.
1: Well, I, I feel like that's a really good place to finish right there is just, you know, thinking about, I hope this has been a good introspective thought process for everyone who's listening around the, you know, where is your balance between your work and your clients, between your work and your life? You know, I, I have to admit, I would heard recently someone Say we have to stop calling it work-life balance and start calling it work-life harmony because that's probably a better reflection of what's going to happen. Like, and I mean, I know I certainly live this. You know, I I, a lot of my work I do from home, and then I travel at weird hours. And I do try to keep it in harmony. You know, the good news of working from home is I work ridiculous hours, but I can also still take breaks and play with my kids for lunch if I want to. Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: Like. It's not fair to call it work-life balance, but no. work-life harmony is is kind of what I'm I'm living into, and, and thinking of that in the climate dimension as well really really resonates with me. Of yeah. trying to find that balance between the three.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today, Julie. I I hope this is helpful thought for everyone, but I I've certainly enjoyed the conversation.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much, and and this is a. I'm a, I'm going to be listening to this podcast because I want to hear you talking to other people.
1: Absolutely. I, I hope so. And and you've got a podcast that you've gotten underway as well now. You want to uh, talk about that really fast?
2: Yeah, we're we're do, we, uh, Steve Worshing and I launched something called Becoming Referable, which really looks both at, you know, literally how do you become referable and then how you leverage that to uh, increase referrals as well.
1: So other ways to fill that that referral gap phenomenon yeah. that
2: we talked mm-hmm. about earlier.
1: All right. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining us, Julie.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Absolutely. Take care.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.